Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Oh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Hello, welcome to This is Critical. I'm Virginia Heffernan. This is Critical is the show where we examine all our assumptions about culture, like that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is an uplifting story. Why should we celebrate the fact that Rudolph's acceptance by the rapacious overlord Santa and, of course, the fellowship of elite reindeer is so highly conditional, predicated entirely on his use value as a light source on a tight deadline in a highly dangerous workplace? He's uninsured, he gets no overtime, and this is the only time he gets appreciation? Shouldn't we value each other just for being who we are? So the first time I heard the word emo was sometime around 2000. And a college student in Ohio told me that emo referred to two things, MySpace and Death Cab for Cutie. I wrote that down in a Filofax. I remember it in blue ink. I love it when a definition is very restrictive like this, so I know exactly when and when not to use a word. There's nothing worse than a bendy urban dictionary term that you have to understand profoundly and intuitively in all its nuances before you can utter it. And even then, it's even odds you'll roll a gutter ball. So Death Cab for Cutie and MySpace. That's emo. Great. But as a result of that moment with emo... I've always been unnecessarily skeptical when people refer to any other phenomena as emo. My chemical romance and Weezer are emo. Are they, though? That word's entirely reserved for Death Cab for Cutie, and and also Tumblr can't be emo if MySpace is. But here's the other thing. Are emotions emo? No, right? Because emotions can include more than sulking and pouting and agonizing with big, sad red eyes ringed with basically a black Sharpie. You can be angry or frustrated or just irritable as emotions, and even you can be whatever, happy. But what's interesting is that when someone is described as emotional, they still are usually somehow on the brink of tears. They're visibly suffering. You're not generally considered emotional if you're just curious or nervous or pressed for time. Which brings me to, what are emotions? Oh no, I'm afraid that emotions themselves are more than emo, and they're probably one of those. You just have to know, and it's very nuanced, and you can't be reductive, Virginia, those kind of things. When I feel so much more secure with the small word emo, because that means Death Cab for Cutie and MySpace full stop. 
Fortunately, my guest today does understand what emotions are, and better yet, how they came into being as conceits, and then how those conceits came to propel history. We often assume that people in the present, like, say, me, do things because they're half insane and tired and in love and bored and impatient with Verizon Hold music. But that in the past, people like Queen Victoria or Colin Powell did things out of the highest moral reasoning and canny strategy and crystalline logic, when they were just sulking and storming and emoting like the rest of us death cat people. At least that's what my guest today claims. His name is Richard Firth Godbehere, and he's a historian and author of A Human History of Emotion, How the Way We Feel Built the World We Know. It's a thrilling book about how humans invent emotions and how emotions then invent us and our history. But first, I just had to know more about one of Richard's cool names. It was originally Godbert Bear. The Godbert are, it's an old Viking name. But they're basically the priests of the, of the Vikings. The bear bit is the old Viking word for ale. So basically, I am descended oh. from priests of an ale god which I quite like. <laughs> Amazing. All right. What is the field, first off, the sort of benignly named but explosive field called the history of emotions? It is, it's quite a, it's a growing field um, and it kind of exists in two ways. In one way, it's its own type of history. It's a way of trying to find how people felt in history because, History for the longest time is about who did what to who and how that happened. It's all very mechanical. But very rare does a war start because somebody logics themselves into it. Hmm. You know, it usually mm -hmm. happens because someone upsets someone mm -hmm. uh, in some way. So it's sort of, what are the feelings behind things? How do emotions affect the way things operate? But it's also a sort of an umbrella term for uses of lots of different histories. So you can have a history of ideas. So you can have a history of what mm -hmm. people thought emotions were. And you can have mm -hmm. a history of, um, if you like, a social history. What kind of emotions pulled people together and created the cohesion? And you mm -hmm. have all sorts of different kinds of histories within the history of emotion, which is great for me because I cannot concentrate on one thing at a time at all. Do you think that ultimately studying emotion, as you've done, is changing the way we understand our past, our history? Or does it just add color to the facts we already know? It depends. Uh, there's a good friend of mine who described my book when she read it as, um, go, it's like being led down a path you've walked a hundred times and somebody saying, have you seen that over there? No, I've never noticed that. Have you seen that over there? No, I haven't noticed that either. I've walked down a hundred times. I've never noticed these things. Yeah. What about that door there? Ooh. Um, and I think that's what History of Emotions does. It sort of goes and finds things and says, have you really looked? Have you turned and looked at mm -hmm. this element of it and how important it is yeah. to what's going on? Um, and I, I've noticed more and more, you go through phases with history when something starts to become the thing yeah. in the field. And it starts with people objecting to it violently, which happened 20, 30 years ago. So well past that. Mm -hmm. And then you get to the phase where people start to go, okay, I'm, whenever I mention a emotion, I'm going to put a little caveat in saying, of course it wasn't, uh, as a uh, fear as we understand it now. Uh, please, historians of emotions, don't hurt me. And they'll end the brackets yes. and carry on. Yeah. And then they'll start to just do it automatically. Yes. 
and think about it, even if they're a military historian, mm. they'll start to automatically, and we're just getting into that automatic phase where they'll automatically talk about a, a battle between two regiments and then put in the background and the emotional state of the commander and why the command, what the commander felt. Yes. Uh, and you'll go, ah, yay, we're, we're making headway. Um, and I think that's where we're going. Yeah. I think that's where it's heading. Um, we'll continue, we historians of motion will continue to do the deep dives and the close analysis, but it will still be there in all the history that starts to be written very soon. Mm -hmm. I hope. But it also is sort of meta story of why do we even talk about having emotions? When did we start talking about having emotions? Yeah. Are emotions in any sense real? Yes. Yes, it is very much. One thing that um, annoys a lot of psychologists who like to take emotions and get a little box and say, we'll put this emotion here, is we'll yeah. take out that emotion and we'll say happiness and we'll go, okay, let's look at happiness during Roman times. And we'll look really closely for it and go, that's not happiness. Ha what is that? What yeah. exactly is that thing they're talking about? And so we'll get into real detail um, about this kind of joy that they understood that's not quite the same as ours. Ours is very much joy is the ultimate goal. We should be happy all the time. We buy books about how to be happy. But mm. theirs was more, well, happiness is a byproduct of virtue. So we should mm. be virtuous all the time and be virtuous, blah, blah, blah. So it's, things are different. And it mm. is. It's this kind of trying to redraw some maps that have been assumed for a long time. These are mostly largely conceits, and there are sometimes conceits that serve a regime or a power structure, yes. uh, which is amazing, um, amazingly documented and and dramatized uh, in your book. What you. is an emotional regime? That's that's one of the phrases you introduced me to with this book. Yes, an emotional regime. Uh, it was an idea dreamt up by a brilliant historian called William Reddy, um, and he basically noticed that how you express your emotions is kind of held within a regime, which is a, can be an entire country's regime. And that's a top-down emotional construct from their, their, their culture, if you like. Um, mm -hmm. But they can also be smaller. The, um, the example I give that's given quite a lot is of an air steward or an air stewardess on a plane on, mm -hmm. in the highest of business class, in fact, beyond business class, as of a <laughs> private jet class. <laughs> and even if they get the rudest, nastiest, most vile person on board they have to be nice and kind to them and happy to serve them with a smile and be incredibly kind and that mm -hmm. is an emotional regime imposed on them by their position by their job mm -hmm. so that's basically an emotional regime we all live in one or some yeah can you spell out an emotional regime maybe not entirely the uh the air steward since very few of us are ever going to be on a private jet. <laughs> but uh, but something else that, that really makes that contrast clear, to me anyway. Shows of affection in the in more in America and the UK. You know, you can hug, you can kiss, you can do that kind of thing. Even we have limits in the UK, uh, being British, if you go beyond, you know. If it's the right night of the week, a, a snog is fine. But if it's any other time of day, it's sort of, you know, calm down a bit. But it's, we <laughs> couldn't get away with that in some countries. I used to live in Tunisia. You have to be very careful with huh. shows of affection there. I remember being on a, on a train and going from Tozer to Hammamet and holding my wife's hand and then really not liking that very much at all. So, oh, no, you, you don't do that here. Um, so, okay, not on the train. And that's the kind of thing. And it's you don't even realize these things are there. They're just part of your life until you stop and think. 
One thing that comes to mind is my mother is a very polite Southern woman, and yet when she gets in a car and someone cuts her off, she is yeah. so angry that it's as though the person is a monster. You know, yeah. some the person that she would be highly deferential to, it's sweet to, kind to, if she <laughs> met them standing on two feet in a regular room, but met on the highway, it, she's yeah. in some kind of combat you know? Yes. And, yeah. the, and the, the emotional regime of a traffic jam, right, is a little bit yeah. different than the emotional regime of yeah. a kind of a yeah. cocktail party. What about emotional labor? That's another phrase that you yeah. introduced me to, or at least expanded for me in this book. Uh, and emotional labor is, as its most basic, the work done when you are trying to adhere to an emotional regime. So ah. it will be the air steward who has to expend a lot of energy to not just scream at the rude passenger. It's the hard work done. Um, I can think we've all been there sometimes when we've had to be very, very calm and we don't want to be. And it really can tie you out. And it leads to uh, something else called an emotional refuge, which is that mm. time when you are in your car, letting your emotions run wild as you scream at other people because oh, you've got yes. to eventually get them out. Yes, um, yes. What are some other examples of emotional refuges? I think I might need one. <laughs> if you like sports, go into the crowd of a sports team you like and yell and scream at the opponents. That's a popular one. In revolutionary France, there used to be little coffee shops and drinking dens where people would go and scream and yell and shout about how awful the king was. Yeah. And that's the only place they could do that. They simply weren't allowed to express that anywhere else. And anywhere with anyone that you can trust to take it, yeah. most of us have sat someone don't we, that you can just say, right, I've had the worst day, and yes. they'll be fine. Um, that's a good place, to, that's a good emotional refuge to find. You cite some feminist theory, including mm. the great Arlie Hochschild, who, oh, yeah. as time goes on, I just think, wow, she nailed a lot of ideas very early yeah. in the game. So tell us about Arlie Hochschild on emotional labor, and particularly that why this is a feminist issue. I'm talking about the fact that if a woman wants to be the head of a Fortune 500 com company, she has to repress her emotions a million times more than any man does. Mm. She has to be calm. She has to behave in a certain way. She has to be a certain person. And the men don't. The men are just men, mm. <laughs> you know, which is just not right. And it's uh, that kind of thing, that kind of labor, which again is tiring. Yeah, not only, as you say, not only in uh, that does she have to manage her own emotions, yeah. she has to manage the emotions of others. She has of to others, say yeah. things meant to, you know, soothe, rough, unruffle feathers or soothe, yeah. smooth feathers. And that is very costly, I think. You're mm. right about that. And then leads to emotional refuge. You know, when I was, my children were very young, you know, there was so much talk about, you know, how soon can we get to rosé o'clock? or, you know, drinks with the girls because yeah. so much of our daily work was calming tantrums in our husbands and children. <laughs> yeah, and some place yeah. where you could just be yourself. Yeah, in uh, our societies, in the West societies, very much, a lot of societies, very much put upon women to be the arbiters of emotions and to keep everything flowing nicely and to um, keep everything going. And we men, luckily, are just allowed to emote for some reason, as we like. 
So your family dinner dynamics, as you describe them, dinner table yes. dynamics, seem very similar to mine. We're also mostly oh, yeah. ac- academics, um, and we tease a lot. Um, oh, yeah. And you call, which I know other people, it took me a while to see that other people think that that is just cruelty. (laughs) But um, to me, it seems like ordinary conversation. You call that an emotional community. Yes. Um, Tell us about emotional communities. Emotional communities are a bit like emotional regimes. The main difference being they aren't imposed. They kind of are created within a community. They are almost an agreement. This is how we're going to behave around Hmm. each other. Hmm. And everybody exists in several emotional communities. Nobody's Hmm. in just one. So my family are a particular kind of emotional community because we like to tease each other um, quite a lot. My mum can be quite rude at times and we're all the same, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, But I go and visit my wife's family and they're different (laughs) yeah they have their own emotional community their own way of being they're they're very strangely polite all the time to each other (laughs) the way they'll say thank you oh i'm very sorry for that it's like you say that to your mum yeah not your boss (laughs) but yeah it's it's that's the emotional community we all live in lots of them when we're in crowds again at sports that crowd is a different emotional community. When we're at work, we're in a different emotional community. When we're with our families or when we're with our friends, that might be a different... In fact, even one group of friends may have its own set of rules that are different to another group of friends. They mm-hmm. have their own set of rules, depending on who these friends are. Yeah. Um, and that is an emotional community. It's mm-hmm. that sort of bottom-up agreement. Well, that is, it seems like one person's emotional community. So you at your teasing table with lowbrow jokes and so forth, yep. then see, sit at your, you know, your wife's family table. And I'm not asking you to gossip about anyone, but nope. it could be that at a very polite table, what is her and their emotional community is your emotional regime. You suddenly are expected to be, as you would say, the air steward at the table. Yes. Really managing your emotions, being careful that you don't overdo it or, you know, use profanity or vulgarisms or wild jokes or tease. And it could seem very oppressive to you where it's a community and even a refuge to your wife's family. Yes, absolutely. And it's also, um, it's very difficult, I think, when you go to another culture again. uh, Yeah. That you are... The first thing you are doing is you're trying to figure out what's the regime here. What how am I supposed to behave? How am I supposed yeah. to emote myself? What what am I allowed to how am I allowed to express myself? What are the rules? What are the manners? What are the things I can say? Um yeah, it, it happens all the time. And, and it's like I said, I've said another culture, but another dinner party. Any dinner party that you ever go to, when you walk in that room, the first thing that's going is right, how am I supposed to behave in here? Yeah. What kind of party is this? And you're waiting for that first person to tell that joke so you can gauge (laughs) what the level is because jokes Uh, are a great way to gauge a level. Coming up after the break, how have these emotional regimes influenced some of the biggest moments in history? Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean Every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food service. One, two, three... 
four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Welcome back to This is Critical. Today I'm talking with Richard Firth Godbehere, author of the book A Human History of Emotion, How the Way We Feel Built the World We Know. Let's get to the very, the slightly destabilizing idea that there is nothing real that can be pointed to in the world called emotion. Yeah. Um, Emotion is a word that we started to use to put in a certain set of bodily feelings about 1800 or so, and it grew with popularity. We have this box of emotions, which are happiness, sadness, disgust, and then with this other box of feelings called hunger and pain and warmth that for some reason they don't go in the emotion box. It's a different box. But that hasn't always been the case. There used to be these things called passions. And passions was anything you felt in the body that affected your mind. Hmm. And then there's these other things called affections, which is anything you thought about that made you feel weird. And then there were sentiments, which was how a moral act might make you feel. Hmm. So if someone's doing something morally good, you feel a good moral sentiment towards their behavior and vice versa. And you felt those same sentiments for good art. So if art is beautiful, you feel a positive sentiment for that art. If it's Hmm. vile and horrible, then you feel negative towards that art. So emotions is just the latest in a long list of boxes into which we put a particular group of feelings. So... Emotions are more than just a stimulus response for a feeling in the brain, which is Uh what for the longest time psychologists thought they were. Well, this is, okay, so just to (laughs) point out how radical this is, you know, it sometimes seems like every other article or even podcast, I have to admit, is on a subject like shame or uh, guilt, as if A, you could find them in the brain, and B, there was was a very meaningful distinction across cultures um, that, that differentiated them. And I think what's so powerful about your book is that you roll your eyes, not a little bit, because I, I can imagine what you're like at your dinner table, <laughs> at this idea that there's a hard and fast idea about what love is or what greed is or yeah. or, or, or desire is or what shame and guilt are. Yeah. So I, I just want to establish that this is, um, that, you know, you're moving away from some essentialist idea of emotions. Yes. But yes. also, this is especially daring thing, moving away from neuroscience and neurobiology. Yes. I get the sense that you think neuroscience, the ascendant subject of our day, (laughs) is kind of a bunk field. I don't think it's a bunk field. Okay. If anybody has ever read, this is interesting to do, if you can find the paper from around, say, 1880, 1890, 1900, talking about evolution, be amazed how completely confident and utterly wrong they are. Hmm. It's there's this emergent field of evolution. <laughs> they just didn't have the technology. So they were kind of doing the best with what they had and making guesses. Mm-hmm. And I actually kind of think that's where neuroscience is at the moment. Because saying to somebody, hmm. okay, what we want you to do, there's a massive white tube. 
It's really noisy. You have to lay on your back, feel really, really claustrophobic, put some headphones on, mm. and then we're going to show you some pictures and we want you to feel normal. Mm. No, that's not how it works. Yeah. I think it is getting better. There's some wonderful virtual reality stuff where they can track what's going in the head while people work through virtual reality landscapes. It's a bit more realistic. Yeah. And things like that starting to happen. So it's not that I don't like it. I think it's... I think I heard the analogy that it's like somebody standing outside a factory watching lights going on in offices and trying to work out how the factory operates. That's kind of where it is at the moment. Yes. Okay. Um, So so bunk is too strong, but let's say an embryonic field. Yes. This book is filled with stories, which is not what one would expect from an academic study of the history of emotions. The stories are so compelling. Tell me about Plato and emotions. Uh, Plato. His name means broad because he was a wrestler. I know a lot of people find that that fascinating. I love that the guy was this huge monster of a man who looked like The Rock. And he, he basically, when he writes about emotions in his works, he would write little stories himself about people. And it would be people he knew or people his readers would know. It'd be like somebody now writing a, a drama and putting Donald Trump and uh, Joe Biden and Margaret Thatcher's ghost and something. They'd all be real people. And the story of Socrates is that he... Well, Socrates was a little bit um, naughty. He he used to fraternise with people that the Greek authorities didn't like very much. He used to tell people in Greek authorities that were wrong all the time by questioning them. (laughs) He used to find young, wealthy Greek people and convince them of things that the powers that be didn't like him convincing them of, that sort of thing. Yeah. And so they put him on trial for corruption of the young and atheism both of which he was massively guilty of to be honest during the time of the day Um, when they asked him what should your punishment be he said because of my services to the city you should give me a free meal every day for the rest of my life Uh, that didn't go down well and so he ended up having to kill himself using hemlock he had all his friends around and he was about to take the hemlock and it was his duty to take this hemlock. There was nothing going to stop him. And they said to him, we can get you out of here. We can escape. And he said, no, that's not virtuous. What's happened has happened. We must follow this virtue. Mm-hmm. There's a better virtue than happiness, than, than personal gain. It's not about personal gain. I must be virtuous. This is how it is. Mm-hmm. And they all started weeping. And he said, what are you doing? Stop it. You're weeping for yourself, not for me. Mm-hmm. Again, you're being selfish. Don't do that. And he took his hemlock and he laid down. And he, his last words were, uh, we owe a cock to Asclepius. Basically, told him to go and sacrifice to Asclepius, who's the god of healing. We owe, we owe a, a cock. A, yeah, yeah. a cock, as in, as in a male chicken. So a sacrifice right. to the, the god of healing. Got it. Uh, Scarpius was an important god. He was the one who would go to the other gods and say, say, can you stop hurting these people, please? Because they've kind of sacrificed to me. And he was the guy who put a good word in for you, Scarpius. And it's puzzled people what on earth he meant. Because obviously he couldn't heal himself. He'd just taken a, a vial of poison that would hmm. kill a rhino. So he knew his days were numbered. They couldn't heal him. But I have an idea that he meant Athens itself. That what he's saying is... Me doing this, I'm doing this virtuous thing because the place I live is hurting right now. They've Hmm. gone through the worst wars imaginable. The Persians, then a civil war, and then they had tyrants running the country, and then they got rid of the tyrants. It'd been awful. And he said, my 
death, I think he was thinking my death can be a moment of release, a moment of uh, virtue, a moment that can take us towards where we desire our true happiness, if you like. And so I'm happy to sacrifice myself for that. And Mm. he's saying, right, so can you now go and do the sacrifice of this male chicken so that Asclepius will then heal Athens? I like that the sacrifice was not just Socrates, but Socrates plus a rooster, you know, just plus like a, rooster, a little yeah, more yeah. <laughs> to get to yeah. get Greece healed. Um, yeah. yeah, that's that's really interesting. So how does that exactly express an emotion? Plato wanted to know why you would could feel two things at once. Yeah. Why you could be terrified and run into battle with courage at the same time. Yeah. Why? How could you do that? And he thought that there were two bits of this soul that both felt things, the mind the reason, and the body part. Yeah. Uh, and that explains it because you can feel one thing and then think feel, for lack of a better word, yeah. another. Yeah. But what's important is the think-feel bit. That's the virtuous bit. They're the virtuous feelings. They're the feelings that are based on reason, which seems odd, but the feelings based on reason. The feelings <laughs> that I feel this and I need to, do, I need to go with the courage because we need to win this battle. Mm-hmm. That's virtuous. Even if I die, I need to do this. Hmm. Whereas the fear bit, that's in the feeling bit, you you should repress that because all that will do is make you run away, you'll lose the battle, and then the next thing you know, your (laughs) city's been invaded, they installed 30 tyrants, and bad things happen. Mm -hmm. So that is sort of the core of his understanding of feeling. So when he is saying, I'm giving myself to Athens, Mm -hmm. he is saying, I am using this. I am actually terrified. Underneath all this, you know, I'm terrified. I've just taken poison. Mm -hmm. I know I shouldn't have done that. Uh, my body doesn't want me to, but I am controlling that. Hmm. I am pushing that down because the feeling I should be focusing on is my duty, my virtue, and doing what's right for my city. So there really is a concept of repression. I think it was more, it was less pushing it down. It was more focusing on what the feeling you should be using. Yeah. Um, it's kind of, there's an idea in modern emotion science, there's the idea of appraisal. And the idea is emotion isn't just a stimulus, a response. It's a stimulus, an appraisal mm. of that stimulus, mm. and then a response. And that's kind of it. It's more, what am I feeling? How yeah. should I deal with it? Yeah. Is it right to deal with it this way or that way? If I deal with it this way, then I'm heading in the, I might be heading in the wrong direction towards harm. If I go that way, then I'm not. Yeah. Um, so it's not, it's, it's partly repression, but it's as much trying to follow something, trying to work out what's the right thing to do. Note to self, get a neuroscientist on this show to bash history. Coming up after the break, we take a trip through some of the surprising ways that emotions have influenced history. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I got a charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. (laughs) No, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. 
New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Welcome back to This is Critical. Today, we're getting all emotional with Richard Firth Godby here, author of the book, A Human History of Emotion, How the Way We Feel Built the World We Know. We're calling all into question whether emotions simply exist in the, in the brain or the heart and really talking about how they're culturally constructed. So I want to talk about them as, a, as an instrument of power. And if they live in the cultural social world, then they're inevitably going to get caught in power relations. So the Catholic Church yep. worked this way, leveraging emotion to sell the Crusades. Well, um, this goes right back to the early days of the history of emotions. Uh, there's a paper out there um, called by a man called John Riley Smith, uh, the late, great John Riley Smith, who was as important to the history of emotions as he was to uh, crusade studies. Yeah. Brilliant man. He uh, wrote a paper called Crusading as an Act of Love, which broke the world, well, my world, uh, when it came out way, way back in 1980. The idea is, and this since seems to be followed up, seems to be it, that in the time of the Crusades, they understood love as based on St. Augustine. Mm -hmm. And St. Augustine basically split all feelings, but particularly love, into two types. A selfish type and a non-selfish type. A type that is for, to, for the betterment of yourself mm -hmm. and a type that brings you closer to God. Mm -hmm. What he would call the telos or the fini, the final thing, which mm -hmm. is to be with God after you die. So there's a kind of love that brings you close to God. And that's the kind of love that when Pope Urban made his speech to say, I think we need to go and attack the Middle East because of all sorts of reasons, they're attacking our fellow Christians, they have the Holy Land. He used this concept over and over again, charitas, which is sort of a bit like sort mm. of love and charity. Mm -hmm. And he would over and over again say to them, we need to do this because they have our beloved lands, they are helping our beloved Christians, they are doing this. And so... It was about using that kind of love for something to mm. drive people to do unspeakably violent things. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of the dark side of love, which is not something we think about these days very often, but it does have yeah dark sides. It's a neat trick to persuade people to destroy others or themselves in the name of name of love. Yeah. Do you see echoes of this in how politicians sell wars today? I think, yeah, I think that the love of your country is is a very similar thing. Rather than it being the, the finny, the telos being God, it's your country. It's mm -hmm. your patriotism. And if you don't love your country enough, then that's why you'll oppose the war. Um, seems to be a thing. Hmm. I remember the beginning of the um, Iraq wars back when mm -hmm. Tony Blair was our prime minister here. There was a lot of, well, you're not a patriot unless you back this. Mm -hmm. You're not patriotic. Are you British or what? We've got to go and defend ourselves. Yeah. And a lot of us marching through London thought otherwise. Yeah. Um, it's it's definitely there. It's definitely part of uh, the love of the country is a big thing. During the Cold War, I think in the book I mentioned that during the Cold War, love of your country was a key part of what both the Soviets and America tapped into. Um different means. Uh, America used the incredible, unbelievable, unstoppable power of moms 
to do it, saying, yeah, the love of your, the love you have for your mom will engender a love for your country. It's the same process. So we need to really get in there and make sure that kids are really attached to their parents and particularly their mothers. Yeah. Whereas Russia, it was more, you must express love for your country when you're shown, because if you don't, well, <clears throat> a bit more emotional labour involved in the Russian version than the American version, to be honest. about, I know disgust is a particular interest of yours. You talk about disgust as having motivated the medieval witch crazes. Yes. It's actually an older version of disgust. Uh, disgust is kind of my way into it, but it's something called abomination. Hmm. And abomination is very interesting because it comes from the Latin abominatio from the Latin Vulgate Bible. Hmm. Um, and abominatio is a word used to describe a good dozen different types of feeling that the Hebrews wrote about in the Old Testament. So instead of having this dozen different subtle kinds of, you know, a, a way you would feel if you saw an idolater, as opposed to a way you would feel if you saw rotten meat, as opposed to a way you would hmm. feel if you saw someone with uh, dodgy weights and measures trying to con you, they hmm. all had their little subtle differences of hmm. feeling. Hmm. And then along came St. Jerome and said, now I'm going to use one word. Uh, <laughs> I'll turn all these little things into one abomination, which mm. back then was basically the feeling God would have when you wronged him in some way or hmm. did something he didn't like. I had no idea. It's the same as all those feelings when uh, uh, that if you, uh, idolatry is the big one. Idolatry is the very big one. It's yeah. important for witches that if you are, if you're an idolater and you commit idolatry, that makes God very, 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 very revolted mm. with you. So, I keep thinking about is the object disgusting or is your is the disgust in our bodies in the presence of it and thus just in some ways completely arbitrary like you think of allergens right so yep. a friend of mine who gets bad migraines finds the smell of perfume disgusting because yep. it causes a migraine in her it's a so-called trigger right yep. so like is a word, say, or a whatever that triggers a set of emotions in the person is it intrinsically disgusting and thus the responsibility of the person who says it, not, you know, to refrain from saying it? Or is it the responsibility of the person feeling disgust and nausea to regulate her emotions and affect, you know, toward it? Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Here's the, th here's the thing about disgust. It is, it is always attached to a thing, to an object, to a person or ah. a, a, a thing. But that thing isn't itself disgusting because if it was mm. then people wouldn't eat insects in part of the world and people wouldn't ah. eat chickpeas in maggots in part of the world so you see you see a rotten apple you smell perfume when you're sensitive to it and you feel that feeling there's not much you can do the feeling's mm. there mm -hmm. it's just how it is and it's how we got the concept of taste meaning something beautiful and artful because mm. they always thought that taste mm. couldn't be you can't cheat taste Something tastes good or it doesn't. If you bite ah. into something and it's horrible, it's horrible. That's the way it is. Yeah. Whereas the other sentence can be deceived. This is really interesting because, you know, I don't know if you saw the movie Parasite, but hmm. there was a long conversation and worry that, you know, say the disgust in the way other people smell, right? Yes. And that's seen to be some physical experience on the part of the beholder, yeah. the apprehender, but in fact might express racism or xenophobia yeah. um, and and should be modulated. I mean, you can usually take apart your disgust absent eating rancid meat. 
Yeah. You know, and sort of see it in its component parts. And I think your work on disgust makes this more possible, which is part of the reason that I recommend your book as kind of self-help and (laughs) self-optimization. And the thought of it as a self-help book, but great. (laughs) Yeah. The fewer things that disgust you, the better. I, I, I think. I think so. Um, there's a great case study in um, The Road to Begin Pier by George Orwell when he talks about how he was raised to believe that the working classes smell mm. um, and how he had to work his way through that in a similar way here. Yeah. Even uh, Brexit, Brexit really isn't over. We like to think it is. But those of us who voted to remain for the longest time painted those who, to leave in a particular way. They mm. were uneducated, they were poor, they didn't know any better. And I think one of the best things a leaver like myself can do is find a person advocating for why leaving the European Union was a good idea. Yes, They'll be wrong, <clears throat> but that's the conversation to have because you realise actually, you know, this is a genuinely held opinion that people have actually thought about a lot yeah. of the time. It's not just that they're these that don't know any better. Oh dear. No, not at all. So so spell out for me how disgust drove in particular the kind of cre- witch craze in the Middle Ages. Okay, so the first thing about witches is they the Middle Ages weren't when they were a problem. In the Middle Ages, if they thought you were a witch, they thought you were just a strange person who was a bit wrong. Ah. Every historian who studies witches, every time a film comes on and it's set in the Middle Ages and there's a witch burning, we all go, Aah! so <laughs> it's normal. Um, yeah. The witch, the worst of the witch crazes was in the 16th and 17th century, a period we call early modern or pre-modern in certain fields. And what was happening is the world had changed beyond recognition. Um, for a start, the Ottomans had invaded Constantinople which sounds like a small thing, but it meant the silk roads were shut. No silk roads. That means no mm. plates, no jewellery, no silk, funnily enough. Right. And people yeah. liked their trinkets. They liked them a lot. Yes. And so they tried to find other ways to get to the Indies. And so this guy called Christopher Columbus, you may have heard of him, he went off and bumped into a continent and the world changed. Yeah. Try and imagine we send a satellite round the back of Mars and find a city there how that would change the world. Mm -hmm. Just instantly, a city full of humans Mm -hmm. on the back of Mars that's been there for 10, 20,000 years. Mm -hmm. It had that impact. So there's that. There are new diseases because there are more wars because the Protestant Reformation has just begun. So the Protestants and the Catholics are warring endlessly. Where there's war, there's new diseases because there are people coming into contact with each other. There are fires. There's all sorts of things. And there's also a deep belief that the Book of Revelations is coming to pass. Mm-hmm. So that's the background of all this. Got it. Wow. And so people are terrified. Yeah. People start looking for signs of this everywhere. So when a Unfortunately, a woman who looks a particular way, older and maybe a widow, so she's got no income of her own, goes to a house and says, can you can you help me with arms because I've got no food? And they say, sorry, we can't. And then their cow dies. Right. They go, she's a witch. Hmm. She cursed my cow. And so, because people are ready to believe it. Yeah. And it starts to explode. This whole idea of there being these foot soldiers of Satan, mm. these witches, becomes absolutely believed and it completely explodes. And you end, in Europe, mainland Europe in particular, you get appalling, appalling witch trials. Now, hmm. the abomination is that feeling of sin because witches are idolaters. Hmm. And hmm. idolatry is the worst possible sin. Hmm. Hmm. And so idolatry produces 
this idea of uh, abomination, mm -hmm. this idea of getting away from something harmful. Hmm. But also there's the physical aspect, because like I said, these witches didn't conform to the periods or our periods, sadly, conceptions of female beauty. So there's a massively misogynistic element to it as well, that women who don't look a certain way, well, they might be witches. It, it just exploded because of all these things, because of this fear, it was the, really the end of the world. It exploded in, like I say, terrible, terrible violence mm. where tens of thousands of women were executed in mainland Europe by burning in Britain, by hangings and Salem by hanging, slightly different uh, laws yeah. is the only difference. They still killed them both. And 90% of those witches were women. And it's that abomination, that feeling of that dual feeling of they're an idolatry hmm. and yuck. Look at them. I, I like, yeah, the word, the word yuck is so key there. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, I mean, you think of yeah. all the times that um, genocides have used metaphors of pestilence and, um, yeah. and, and bugs and whatever to describe the, the so called ethnic cleansing, right? There's like something dirty about some of us, about some of us women who don't look like we're supposed to. Um, yeah. <laughs> God, that's not true anymore, isn't it? <sighs> <laughs> yeah, right. All right, lots to think about during this pensive season. And next week, for the new year, it's going to be all about hope. I promise. If you want to learn more about how emotions have influenced history, including examples we didn't get to about the American Revolution and the space race, check out Richard's book, The History of Emotion, How the Way We Feel Built the World We Know. That's it for this week's show. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to rave, uh, rate and review it in Apple Podcasts. It helps other people learn about the show. For more information and to keep tabs on us, follow me on Twitter at page 88. And the show is at this critical pod. If you have a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Harry Huggins is the producer. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical. Stitcher. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because I got the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. 
Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.